Good evening, everybody. Um, let's start with something we all know. We all know that the world divides into two kinds of people, yesayers and naysayers. Yesayers are those who always agree with you, and naysayers are those who always disagree with anything you say. And I, if I look around the room now, half of you are going yes, and half of you are going no, which proves my point. Now, if there's one thing you should remember about Mao Zedong, it's that he was the arch naysayer. This is the man who, some of you will know something about Chinese history, I'm sure, but in 1966, he created a revolution against his own political party, the Cultural Revolution, the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. And he brought into being the Red Guards, loads and loads of students, uh, radicalized them, turned them into Red Guards. And they were the ones who toppled the capitalist roaders, those in authority taking the capitalist roaders, Mao described them, from office. And yet, within a very short period of time, within two years, he called the leaders of the Red Guards into his office. On the fifth... Excuse me, we have a technical... This would never happen if Mao was still alive. It's on? Just, just talk amongst yourselves. Can I keep going? I have to go back to the beginning. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. I don't even remember what I said. Um, on the 5th of September, 1968, Mao called the leaders of the five largest red group, guard groups into his office, and he said, that's it, end. You have let me down, and with tears in his eyes, he said, and what is more, you have let the people of China down. And he closed down the Red Guard movement. Of course, you know, you can say, well, that was a political decision, but he really was a nice. Let me give you another example. 1958, well before the Great Leap Forward, Mao Zedong, who had a very, an intellectually very odd relationship with the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang, he, at that time, was seeking to... Uh, make an ideological distinction between the first emperor and himself. You know, after all, the first emperor is famous not just for uniting China, but for burying the intellectuals and burning the books. And so in 1958, Mao Zedong wanted to say to everybody in China, yeah, no, no, we don't do that. We're different. And this wasn't the Cultural Revolution. So in 58, he made a big speech with the leadership there, and he said, we are very different to Qin Shi Huang. And Lin Biao, who was later to become uh, Chairman Mao's closest comrade in arms in the Cultural Revolution, in his usual somewhat sycophantic way, said, after Mao had finished uh, criticizing Qin Shi Huang, he said, oh yes, Qin Shi Huang was a terrible tyrant. He did this and he did that. And Mao simply turned to him and said, and you would be much worse, so shut up and sit down. <laughs> that is the kind of man we're dealing with. Now, in that spirit of naysaying, let me tell you what the three arguments, the three positions about Mao are that I would want to argue against. The first is the decision of the Chinese Communist Party made in 1981, the, something called the Resolution on Party History. This is after Mao died in 1976. The party had to decide what verdict it was going to have on Mao Zedong. And in 1981, it came up with its verdict. It did a number of things. But most important in terms of Mao's behavior and his ideas, it said, Mao started going off the rails in 1957. 
before 1957, before the Hundred Flowers, before the Great Leap Forward, Mao was okay. He saw us right. He brought us to power, and what he did in getting us there uh, in the early 50s was good. But after 57, all the stuff that led into the Cultural Revolution, that was wrong. Now, my argument would be, that's a load of nonsense. The Mao of the Cultural Revolution is very much a part of the Mao who is the guerrilla leader, the Mao who is the peasant leader, and the Mao who is everything else. A second argument I would want to put to you would be, in the spirit of naysaying, is the, the argument of, um, what's her name? Jiang Rong. Many of you in this room will have read a book that got a great deal of publicity about three years ago called Mao, the Unknown Story, by, uh, written by John, uh, Jiang Rong and John Halliday. Um, there they portray Mao as a monster. Uh, Mao may have wanted to be a monster, I doubt it though. Their argument that he not only was a monster but wanted to be a monster is something that I would argue against. He was, you know, he was a human being after all. Most human beings are not monsters, despite what you read in the papers every day. If you're interested, and we'll come back to, um, we'll come back to Jan Rung's arguments, I'm sure, later, but if you're interested, there is a new book just about to come out called Was Mao Really a Monster? <laughs> it's edited by Greg Benton, and it's a series of articles which criticize Jan Rung's book, Mao the Unknown Story. It has some wonderful authors in it including David Goodman from the University of Sydney. So I urge you to go out and buy them. The third argument that I would uh, want to be a naysayer about is perhaps the most serious one. And that is, Mao himself wanted to be a political philosopher. That was, you know, it's strange to believe this, but here is a man who was a great guerrilla leader, a great peasant organizer, the man, you know, without whom, quite literally, there would be no PRC, no People's Republic of China. The Chinese Communist Party says, if there had been no Mao Zedong, there would be no new China, and that is 100%, if not more, correct. But he really wanted to be a, a, the philosopher king. That was, you know, that is his whole manner. You have to understand where he came from. He came out of the... Uh, modern Chinese nationalist revolution at the end of the 19th century. He was steeped in the Chinese classics, again, as you'll see in a minute. He, he understood the classics probably better, he understood the Chinese classics probably better than he understood the Marxist classics. And his way of thinking was very steeped in that kind of, that kind of Chinese tradition. And he wanted to be, he wanted to write Chinese poetry, and he wanted to be a calligrapher. If you ever go to China, and I know some of you have been and come from there and have been there, if you pick up the People's Daily, the organ, the main newspaper of the Chinese Communist Party, the calligraphy on the masthead of the People's Daily is written by Mao Zedong. And indeed, many of the newspapers still have their masthead written in his calligraphy. Why? This is not just a political thing about, you know, I give you my inscription. It's also because he was a calligrapher. And indeed, his calligraphy is quite good. So, or those who know about these things tell me that, like my wife and Professor Regal in the audience. In the meantime, though. Okay, so there are three arguments that I would want to uh, say to you, uh, I would want to make. I actually don't want to, in this lecture, make those arguments. But I want those three arguments to underpin what I, I see as my duty today, which is to explain to you the ideational aspects of Mao Zedong and his role in China and in the world. Uh, I'm going to do that by talking about the thought of Mao Zedong, 
by talking about Mao's political philosophy and by talking about um, the idea of Mao, all of which I see as three different things. And you may say to me, oh my God, Goodman's got, gone off the rails again. He's saying the thought of Mao Zedong and then he's talking about the political philosophy of Mao Zedong as though they were two separate things. Well, they are. And bear with me and you will find out why. But first of all, what I'd like to do, because I think it's really, it's really important to understand what, is, what the thought of Mao Zedong was and where his political philosophy came from, I think we really need to understand a bit about his life. So please bear with me for a minute. Oh, there's the young Mao. Jolly good. Okay. I'm not going to go through his whole life, but as I said, the most important thing in terms of uh, who he was and where he came from was that he was a product of the modern Chinese, uh, modern Chinese nationalist revolution at the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, modernizers in China were understanding that they couldn't go on in the ways they'd gone on before. They were looking to the West for new ideas. They were looking to regenerate and indeed to build a modern Chinese nation state. And Mao is very much part of that move. But he, of course, contributed perhaps two things to that movement, which nobody else really did in a big way. One of them was the notion that, I mean, other people did, but he was part of it. Uh, and he, he certainly made it more important. And that was the, the notion of peasant rebellion. In the mid-1920s, he understood that if you're going to create any kind of movement for social change in China, you have to do something about the peasantry. Other people were working with the peasantry. There's no question. He wasn't the only person who had the idea. But he was the man who really brought it, sheeted it home to the, the two revolutionary movements that were active in China at the day, the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party. When the revolution started to falter, when the revolutionaries started to fight each other in the late 1920s, and when the Communist Party started to lose out in a big way, he was the one who took the party into the countryside and mobilized it to mobilize the peasantry. That was in 1928. And in doing that, he did something else as well. He gave the Communist Party a guerrilla a, a warfare heritage, which was, of course, its total key to eventual success in 1949. So those are really the two things that Mao is very famous for. And um, other than the Cultural Revolution, which is, of course, after the party came to power in 1949. But why it's so important in understanding Mao and his relationship to the party and the relationship to his ideas is because he was always on the outer before about 19, the late 1930s, early 1940s. Within the Chinese Communist Party, when all this debate was going on about how do we get to power, what do we do, who do we fight, who do we ally with, Mao was never part of the in-crowd. He was always part of the out-crowd for very good sociological reasons. He wasn't from a rich family. Most of the people who ran the Communist Party before 1927 were from rich families. Indeed, you might even argue they still are, but that's a different argument and we won't go there. In 1927, though, the Communist Party that failed in its revolution was a very interesting political animal, something you would not recognize as a Communist Party. For a start, it was a federal Communist Party. It didn't have democratic centralism. It was much more like a gentleman's club. And the rules were like a gentleman's club. For example, women had great difficulty becoming members. Uh, they, had, they had to go through exceptional... They, had, they were allowed to join a women's branch. They weren't allowed to join the main branch of the Communist Party. But 
We'll leave all that aside. What Mao did after the failures in 1927-1928 was to give the Communist Party from the, uh, the depths of defeat, he showed it a way to go forward. But in doing that, of course, he annoyed the people who had been leading the party before and who had also retreated uh, either abroad or uh, to the countryside uh, with him and who had previously been, uh, been in charge. So during the early, late 1920s and early 1930s, there was a, a constant battle within the Communist Party and he was always being pushed to the outer. One of the stories I'm not going to tell you about tonight is the relationship between Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. But I mention it here because those two were very close. And the reason they were so close is that Deng Xiaoping always supported Mao Zedong in those inter-Nisine battles of the early 1930s. And in fact, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping ended up in jail and ended up divorced for Mao Zedong in the early 1930s. So you can see the depth both of the opposition that was going uh, against Mao Zedong, but also the, the kind of rap that Deng Xiaoping took for Mao. What happened as a result of always being on the outer was that when his policies, his ideas of going to the peasantry, his ideas of guerrilla warfare, proved to be correct, as they did by the late 1930s, then everybody in the party started to say, oh my God, we should have listened to him ages ago. And they went from a position where they did not listen to him to a position where, frankly, they listened to him too much. The source of his charismatic authority was that he had always been right before, well, in fact, before 1949, but I'm talking now about the late 1930s. And they imbued him, they gave him, frankly, too much authority. I have an old friend, well, I had an old friend, he's died now. He was a member of the leadership at that time. And he said to me in the 1990s, uh, before he died, he said to me, quite frankly, we followed him for that reason, because we knew he was right. He had been right. But he said, if we knew what he was going to do in the 50s, we would have stopped him then and there. He said, but that's the problem. He said, you don't know. You never have 2020 hindsight. And of course, I said, well, we all know that. So, you know, he wasn't very happy about that. But that's the way it goes. Um, now, of course, what that meant was after 49 was that what Mao had done and said before 1949 became very much the writ of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's where we move on to the thought of Mao Zedong. Oh, some pictures from Mao's life, just, to, just so you can have a little break. This is Mao in Yan'an with his wife, his third wife, Jiang Qing, who of course was his ally during the Cultural Revolution. And this is Mao in 1949, proclaiming the, um, uh, uh, the establishment of the People's Republic of China. He did not say on this occasion, the Chinese people have stood up. Now you can hear recordings of it, but it's unfortunately not correct. This is Mao with his old chum, Deng Xiaoping, in the 50s. And this is a really interesting picture. This is the unity of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party in 1956 at the Eighth Party Congress. This was before Mao decided to turn on everybody and accuse them of being capitalist raiders. This was really the last time when the leadership of the Communist Party, which had come through the period from 1927 onwards, uh, was united in public. After this, it kind of fell apart, or didn't so much fall apart as suffer from Mao's depredations. Mao leading up to the Cultural Revolution, and Mao in the Cultural Revolution himself. And here, you will see, if we go back, you see on his arm, 
he's got a red, he's greeting the Red Guards in Tiananmen Square in 1960. He's got a Red Guard armband on, telling about the Red Guards before. Just have a look. Those of you who read Chinese, as I'm sure you all do, because Kevin Rudd does, so everybody in Australia must. You'll see at the top there, if my thing works. Yep, it does. You can see. Mao, these characters say, Mao Zedong Suxiang. And that means the thought of Mao Zedong. Hong Wei being Red Guard. So, you'll see why in three seconds why that's important. So just hold that thought. This is Mao on his deathbed, and we'll just move on. Okay, now, Mao Zedong thought. Why do I make a distinction between Mao Zedong thought and what Mao thought and said? Well, for a very simple reason. They are different. Thought, in this context, as on the Red Guard armband, Sursiang, thought, actually doesn't mean thought. It means a specific kind of ideology. In, in um, the Chinese Communist Party's understanding of ideology, there is a hierarchy of ideology. There is ism, there is thought, and there is theory. Ism, in this case, of course, is Marxism-Leninism, which is the universal truths of the Communist uh, Party, the Communist movement, at all times, at all places, always and forever. Mao Zedong thought, the thought with capital T and flashing lights and big letters, is the application of that ism to the practical conditions of China. The attempt, in other words, the writing up of the attempt to do what the Chinese Communist Party did from 1927 up to 1949. It bears Mao's name because he wrote most of the important documents that relate to it. And of course, he was, you know, he, he could have worked at the University of Sydney, he had such a big ego. <laughs> but really, if you want to, if you want to translate um, Sursiang, thought, into English, think of it as practical ideology. Think of ism as pure ideology and uh, thought as practical. Later, after Mao's death, you get additions. Deng Xiaoping theory, Jiang Zemin's principles, and undoubtedly we will get something from Hu Jintao's in time as well. But it's, an, it's a hierarchy of ideology. Now, what that really means, of course, is that you can have a distinction between what Mao said, what he did, I mean, it's very important to have this distinction because after all, particularly for the party after 1981, when it has, you know, it has given a verdict on history, given a verdict on Mao Zedong, given a verdict on its own, its own past, it's very important for it to be able to say, Mao did this, but our ideology is that. Uh, but it was also the case even when Mao was alive, to be perfectly honest. This is, uh, that's the kind of official picture of Mao that you see even in Tiananmen Square to this day. <coughs> What is the essence of, uh, do, do join us. What is the essence of Mao Zedong thought in that sense of, you know, the, um, the oh, here we are. You recognize this. But in the sense of the Mao Zedong thought that is written into the co constitution of the Chinese Communist Party, what is the essence of it? Well, if Mao Zedong thought is the practical ideology of the Chinese Revolution, the attempt to put the eternal truths of Marxism-Leninism into practice in the concrete conditions of China between 1927 and 1949, it stands to reason what we're talking about here is a huge dimension of nationalist ideology. This is, as some people have called it, the signification of Marxism, the attempt to make 
real and immediate and approachable the truths of Marxism and Leninism in a Chinese context. And you can see immediately that there might, there might be some problems with that. After all, uh, you know, if you, if you read European history, it was clearly the case that the communist movement expected the revolution not to occur first in Russia, but in the industrialized parts of um, uh, uh, Europe, uh, in particular uh, in Germany, because this is where the proletariat were. And, you know, the Comintern, for example, the communist international movement, had as its working language, not Russian, even though it was based in Russia, but German. And all the German communists went to St. Petersburg uh, in order to set up the, com uh, the com com Comintern. Of course, it wasn't called St. Petersburg. It became uh, Petrograd, whatever. Uh, Leningrad, I beg your pardon, later Petrograd and then Leningrad. Now, in, in the case of China, the thought of Mao Zedong is really about the nationalization of that ideology. And it really, there are really three ways in which I would talk, think about sinification. The first is in terms of language. Communism as an ideology, of course, comes out of Europe. It uses class, uh, terms like class and state in ways which are very foreign to a Chinese. So one of the things that the practical ideology of the Chinese revolution has to do is to create a new lexicon. It has to talk about class. It has to talk about proletariat, for example. Uh, the How do you deal with a proletariat in a country where most of the people are actually peasants, uh, where um, uh, uh, the, the industrialization has been very weak, and in fact you are pursuing a revolution that's based in the countryside? I mean, it's a practical problem as well as an, ide uh, uh, an ideational problem. Well, the answer, of course, is that you you describe the proletariat not in terms of their relationship to the working class, but in relationship to property. And the phrase for the proletariat in Chinese is those without property, which of course means that if you're wandering around the hills of northern China trying to create a revolution, as the Communist Party was in the late 1930s, you can focus on a number of people who are without property, without being what we normally think of as uh, proletarians, shepherds, landless laborers, uh, poor peasants who don't own their land but have to rent it. They can all become the proletariat. So one, one thing, one way in which uh, the signification takes place is clearly through the use of language. Another way, and perhaps more important, is through the concepts and methods, a bit along the lines I've just been talking about. But what were the concrete conditions in China in the 20s, 30s, and 40s? Uh, who were the classes that the Communist Party had to mobilize, and how did they have to bring them together? Now, you know, I mean, in Europe, you can talk about the proletarians rising up, and maybe, if you have to, because you're the leader of a Polish Communist Party, you might say, well, we will ally with the peasants the, the, uh, to overthrow the uh, landlords, and as well as so on, and create a social revolution. But in China, the situation was very different. And what Mao did do in his writing on uh, people's democratic dictatorship was to give the practical ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong thought, uh, a new, uh, or fairly new, four-class base which didn't exist in other kinds of communist movements. Yes, the proletariat had to be there. And indeed, if you, if you, if you pick up even now the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which is this thing I'm holding in my hand for those of you who's, who... who um, eyesight is not, uh, mag uh, doesn't magnify that much, but it's here. Uh, the, f the very first paragraph is, talks about the proletariat being our leading class, being the party's leading class. Yes, the proletariat 
yes, the peasantry, but also two categories that don't appear elsewhere. To, cre to create uh, uh, political power and to drive things forward, we, we, the proletariat and the peasantry, will unite with the national bourgeoisie and the urban bourgeoisie. How, how is that possible? Well, um, only, of course, from a communist perspective, or from a communist ideological perspective in Europe, with a, a large amount of sleight of hand. But nonetheless, in the conditions of China, you can understand what, what this is about. There was, in China, before 1949, a well-embedded ruling class, a very wealthy well-embedded ruling class. People who were not part of it could be made, at least from this perspective, into the platform from which revolution came. And, those, and that idea, it's not particularly new in the sense of uh, uh, ideas that were around in the communist international, international movement before 1949, but uh, it was put together there. The second concept, which is really quite remarkably different in China to elsewhere in the communist world, is the notion of democratic centralism. You'll be familiar, as I know everybody is in this room, with the practice of the Soviet Union under Stalin, where democratic centralism that was meant to be a joke, I'm sorry. Obviously, it didn't go down very well. <laughs> Stalin once said to my grandfather, you have a choice, he said. You can go into exile. And that was... <laughs> that is largely how I come to be standing in front of you today. Yeah. <laughs> um, democratic centralism under the Soviet Union worked in a very... Uh, uh, is, a, is a very simple principle. The party, this is the theory of it, the party debates what has to be debated openly uh, and uh, easily within itself until a decision is made. And then the party gives its decision to the people and the people are required to follow it. In other words, in the Soviet model, democracy is a principle for the party and centralism is a principle for the relationship between the party and the people. Mao Zedong didn't have that. Mao Zedong had something else. Mao Zedong, he didn't always get his way on this, but what he wanted, and what the thought of Mao contains, is the notion that you have debate, the democracy part, with everybody, not just the party. Dem democratic centralism applies to everybody. Everybody joins in the debate, and then the leadership imposes it on everybody else. Uh, a small difference, but one which you'll see in a minute makes actually quite a large part of it. And then the third thing which is really quite interesting in the thought of Mao Zedong, which is different, is the notion of the withering away of the party. Those of you who are card-carrying ex-communists uh, will know that the withering away of the state was an important part of early Marxist thinking, early communist thinking. Mao Zedong actually, and the thought of Mao actually contains uh, prescriptions not simply for the withering away of the state, but for the withering away of the party as well. And interestingly, despite the fact that the Communist Party of China seems to be doing this, they actually haven't removed it from the ideology. Uh, but of course they're doing it in other ways. But uh, we won't go there just for the moment. The third way in which uh, uh, Mao Zedong thought is a sinification is of course in terms of relating ideas about Marxism to China's past. One of the things which re is really, really interesting, if you ever have time to read huge tracts of Chinese communism, which really probably you don't, but if you do, and I had to because I was a student in China during the Cultural Revolution, 
and that was our texts and we had to memorize them and we lost a mark if we got a character wrong in the exam and half a mark if we got a piece of punctuation wrong in the exam. You're laughing, you didn't you have this system? Or you're older, you're younger than that, eh? that's how it worked. Anyhow, so I remember them very well. But what's good about those texts is that they relate the principles of Marxism to a Chinese audience. They, t they tell you tales in terms of the Chinese classics and the Chinese, Chinese stories, outlaws of the masses, Hung Lo Meng, and all, all that stuff is still, through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, is how Marxism is explained to a Chinese audience. So, there's a, yeah, as you would expect, it's a, it's a communication device as much as anything else. All right, enough. Well, I just thought I'd throw in some pictures to encourage you. Okay, all right. Now, now we get up to the interesting stuff. Mao Zedong, yeah. And what's more, we're on time. This is quite remarkable. Take a breather. I've never given this lecture before. And you will notice I'm not using notes, so it's a bit worrying. It's a bit like jumping from a plane without a parachute. All right. Okay, so now, that's the thought of Mao Zedong. Now, what about Mao's political philosophy? Okay. Do you, do you um, notice, um, you've all been students, I'm sure, and you behaved just like students when you came into this room. You sat at the back. <laughs> you left these rows here empty. If I were to ask you questions, you'd go, hmm, yes. You'd whistle and you'd look at the floor. And, and You know, if there's one thing that Mao was about, it was about voluntarism. Coming forward, putting yourself in positions where you cannot be put upon. If you behave like the naughty student at the back of the class, the teacher is going to treat you like a naughty student at the back of the class. If, however, you behave like the Maoist new citizen, and you come down the front, and you sit here and you say, David Goodman, how can you say that about the great chairman Mao? Or something like that. That is what Mao was after. He wanted voluntarism. He wanted you to be part, not just of the problem, but part of the solution. Mao, within Mao, there's no question that Mao is very complex and very contradictory and, you know, as a political philosopher, not really very good. He struggled with the ideas of communism. He struggled uh, to be consistent. And he struggled really uh, not to be contradictory and he, he was so tied up with the politics of trying to run the PRC after 1949 that he tripped over himself. So he wouldn't, for me, he wouldn't qualify as a political philosopher. And it's very difficult to extract what made him a political philosopher. But I think we can see a couple of relationships, a couple of creative tensions within his thinking that are key. One is between spontaneity and participation. Yeah, you would expect, uh, sorry, between spontaneity and organization, excuse me. Maybe this looking at me strangely, but between spontaneity and organization, which of course, from the point of view of a voluntarist politician, you would expect, particularly from the point of view of a charismatic revolutionary. He wants you to do things. He wants you, of course, he wants you to love him and to do things and to be an active uh, political animal. But at the same time, he doesn't want you to do what he doesn't want you to do, right? And he wants to organize you. 
Let me, let me quote you. Actually, I can't do this without quoting, so I'm going to have to... This one I have to read out. This notion about spontaneity and coming forward and being, and being, um, uh, uh, being voluntarist is actually something that runs all the way through Mao, Mao's writings, right from the earliest times. I'm going to quote you now something from 1917. I doubt very much there's anybody in this room who was born in 1917. Not even Jeff. This is called The Great Union of the Popular Masses. And it really, if you haven't read this, I, I recommend it to you. It's, it's vibrant, it shows his essential uh, voluntarism, his, uh, his emphasis on spontaneity, but also his emphasis on organization. So, why is the great union of the popular masses so terribly effective? Because the popular masses in any country are much more numerous than the aristocracy, the capitalists, and the other holders of power in society. Gentlemen, we are peasants. And so we want to unite with others who cultivate the land like we do in order to pursue our various interests. The interests of those who cultivate the land can only be protected by ourselves. How do the landlords treat us? Are the rents and taxes heavy or light? Are our houses satisfactory or not? Are our bellies full or not? Is there enough land? Are there those in the village who have no land to cultivate? We must constantly seek answers to these questions. Gentlemen, we are workers. We wish to unite with others who work like ourselves in order to pursue the various interests of the workers, and so on. Gentlemen, we are women. We are even more... <coughs> always get to laugh. <coughs> Gentlemen, we are women. We are even more deeply immersed in a notion of suffering. We are also human beings. So why won't they let us take part in politics? Why won't they let us take part in so social intercourse? We are gathered together in our various separate dens, and we are not even allowed to go outside the front gate. The shameless men, the villainous men, make us into their playthings. The devils who destroy the freedom to love. They keep us surrounded all day long. But so-called chastity is confined to us women. Where are the temples to, uh, sorry, the temples to virtuous women are scattered all over the place. But where are the pagodas to chase men? And so on and so forth. So you have, you have to be spontaneous, but you have to be organized. The other tech creative tension in Mao, and this is also very important, is between the subjective and the objective determinants of social change. This is a constant problem, of course, for all revolutionaries, and was within the world communist movement. If, you'll recall, in fact, that uh, the communist uh, party under Lenin split from the other social democrats on precise, precisely this issue. Uh, the social democrats in Germany under Bernstein said, no, 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 we can have a different road to revolution because if we get the determinants right, we get the economic base right, then we will bring about revolution. Lenin and the others said, though, no, it doesn't go that way. We have to make revolution. Mao really takes that much further. Mao is not interested at times, and most of the time not interested, in the material nature of the revolution, the material nature of social change. He is interested in the social aspects of relationships in society. It's what people think about what they're doing in society. So his attitude is not, you know, he clearly doesn't think that men and women 
You can have a, a dialectical relationship in a Hegelian sense between men and women. But he does think that you can have attitudes and values which are inter interrelated and interchanging and, and molding and becoming synthesized in that relationship. And in that sense, he was actually quite a long way ahead of, uh, of certainly of other members of the Chinese Communist Party, but in some senses, even of uh, world, world ideas on social change. So there are, there are really, I think, three aspects of Mao's political philosophy which I need to spell out to you. Theory of contradictions, the mass line, and what is called permanent revolution, but is really not to be confused with Trotsky, and we might better call it uninterrupted revolution. Now let me explain these to you. And perhaps if, you know, having explained to you about the social relationships and that these, the change that Mao is trying to bring about is about people's thinking rather than their material conditions, you, you may even understand how this goes. The theory of contradictions is, you know, I call it Mao's theory of contradictions. Mao himself called it a theory of contradictions, but he called, he was contradictory, I'm afraid. It's, it's a cheap joke, but it happens to be true. But Mao, called, what he called his theory of contradictions was contradictory, and it changed over time, and it was not constant. Uh, his most, uh, uh, his, mo his, late, his last and fullest version of his theory of contradictions was a, uh, an article written in 1956 called The Ten Great Relationships which is a series of what he sees as being the ten most important contradictions, uh, social interactions, uh, creative tensions in Chinese society that have to be resolved if progress is to be brought about. And you can imagine what some of them were. The conflict between the economically and socially advanced East Coast and the undeveloped interior, between the urban and rural areas. I mean, in 1956, most of China still lived in the countryside. Countryside was woefully undeveloped. I think uh, GDP per capita in China as a whole in 1956 was about 600 US dollars, maybe 566 US dollars. Call me a liar for 34, who cares? Uh, but something of that order. Uh, so we're not talking, and that's the rich areas, you know, that's the average. So just imagine what it was like in the countryside. Between heavy and light industry, on the surface, some of these sound like um, material contradictions. And indeed, there is a material side to them. But Mao wasn't interested in the material side of the contradiction. Mao was interested in how people in those situations behave. How do peasants behave with respect to urbanites? How do urbanites behave with respect to in the process, of course, of resolving, in Mao's term, of resolving the contradiction, that's to say, working through and changing these things, it is indeed the case that the uh, material conditions would change. No question about it. But that wasn't the goal for Mao. It may have been the goal for Deng Xiaoping, it may have been the goal for Liu Xiaoqi, but it was not the goal for Mao Zedong. How do you do this? How do you get these contradictions that Mao sees. Mao sees contradictions, by the way, everywhere. Everything for Mao is, I mean, he, he really veers away from the Hegelian and Marxist notion of dialectics quite a lot by the mid-1950s. He sees contradictions everywhere. He sees them as never being resolved, but really, in a sense, only devices that you can use in order to get change but you don't actually ever end up with any kind of synthesis. He makes a distinction between contradictions which are 
good and contradictions which are bad. Good, that is to say, for the progress of the Chinese Communist Revolution, and bad against it. So, for example, and he calls these, uh, the good ones are non-antagonistic, and the bad ones are antagonistic. It doesn't really make any difference. Stands to reason, good and bad, black and white, whatever. So, for example, and he actually says this, he's the simplest to say, the, rela the, um, the relationship between the Communist Party and our enemies, doesn't even have to specify who the enemies are, but between us and our enemies is an antagonistic contradiction. But the contradiction between the proletariat and the national bourgeoisie, as I told you before, the national bourgeoisie was one of the four uh, classes that is bringing the revolution about in China, that is not an antagonistic contradiction. That's a non-antagonistic contradiction. And we can make that work for us. Now, you may say, well, that's a, it's very idealistic, isn't it? Well, indeed it is. Much of this is very idealistic. How do you make contradictions change? How do you get people to change their attitudes? And this is where my parallel with you as students comes back in. You get people to change through participation. You, make, you put them in situations where they are forced to think differently. You say to them when they come into a classroom, please don't sit at the back, come down the bottom. Please do give your essay in on time because uh, there's an equity issue. You explain, you do things. And if people are uh, reluctant, if they're, uh, what's the word, that, uh, they, they resist, uh, if people uh, won't go along, what do you do? Well, you put them in situations where they have no choice. The mass line is very much like that. The mass line is, was born out of the circumstances in the late 20s and early 30s. Go down to the countryside, go down to the masses, learn from the masses uh, and change your attitudes. Find out what they want, change your attitudes and do things. It's sometimes portrayed and it sometimes works in the way that if I'm an official and I go down to the front line of production and I had an idea about how I should be doing production but I find out how the workers are doing it and I bring it back to the management level and say we should be doing it differently like any good engineer those ideas may well work. Yes, of course. But that's just, another, that's just another twist on the same kind of thing. During the Cultural Revolution, Mao sent all the officials down to the, in various forms, encouraged them all to go down to the front line of production. It wasn't always implemented in ways which uh, one can feel very comfortable about. Sometimes it got very nasty because it was part of a very violent overthrow of political authority on, at Mao's behest. But that was the logic of it. That was the political philosophy. And this is where permanent or uninterrupted revolution comes in. Because if you want people to change their attitudes, the one thing you cannot afford to do is to let this process ever stop. Because once you allow people to have their share of the action, not to go down to the front line of production, to have airs and graces because they're managers or uh, officials or teachers or whatever, they are ceasing to think critically about their situation and they're not being one with other people. Again, you may say that this is over-idealistic and I probably would agree with you, but I'm telling you this is what, this is how his thinking went. So those, those really are, are the elements. Now, the final thing I want to talk about, uh, these are, this is the final thing I want to talk about is the idea of Mao. 
One of the things that you will be told if you read most textbooks about Mao Zedong is that, as I said right at the beginning, the Mao after 1957 was a very different thing to the Mao uh, before 1957. The idea of Mao, it seems to me, has always been something that the Chinese Communist Party has, from a very early point, built up. So from about 1942 onwards, there was no argument that Mao was on the road to being deified. It didn't come about, the cult of personality didn't come about only after 1957. It came about in the ways I was talking about before. He had been right in the late 20s, he had been right in the early 30s, there were debates within the communist movement within China. He was on the outs outside for sociological reasons, but he had been right, and so people came not just to respect his ideas, but to think that he could never be wrong. And as these, these quotes from three different decades show to you, I mean, the last one is the Cultural Revolution at the height of uh, the cult of Mao. And indeed, it's a song. Uh, some of you will even know the tune, I suspect, but we'll, we won't ask you to sing it. But great, uh, dear, dear as our parents are to us, Chairman Mao is dearer still. But you see, even in 46, it was heading this way, and in 15. I've got um, in my room, yeah, in my room, I, in my office here at the University of Sydney, I have this framed on the wall. You can see, can't you, that Mao's on the medal. It's actually a, 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 it's actually a medal. Do you know what it's a medal for? You probably don't, so I'm going to tell you. This is uh, the medal that was awarded to the soldiers in the Chinese People's Volunteers. That is, the Chinese army, oh, sorry, it's not the Chinese army, it would be unfair to call it that. Uh, you know, um, there was a war in Korea in the early 1950s. And the PRC didn't send the People's Liberation Army, it sent something called the Chinese People's Volunteer, which was, of course, uh, the PLA by any other name, People's Liberation Army. This is the medal from 1954 that was given to all the soldiers on the, in the Chinese army who came back. And even then, it had Mao's Mao's badge on, uh, Mao's picture on. So it's quite interesting. Again, you know, we know in the Cultural Revolution that uh, Mao, oh, you, what, you may, you may, I mean, some of you may well, I suppose, be asking me, where's Mao in that picture? But I hope not. This is where Mao is. That complication between, you know, the, I, I've been at pains to say to you, the thought of Mao Zedong is not Mao's ideas. And that, you know, on one level that's quite clearly the case. But there is a complexity in this. If Mao is, the author, is, is in some sense the author, through here, of the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, when he seeks to challenge the authority of the Chinese Communist Party for himself, as he did in the Cultural Revolution, he can do it because of the Little Red Book and other devices too, and he did indeed. Indeed, at one point during the Cultural Revolution, he called himself the party central committee, which is, you know, I don't think even our vice chancellor would do that. So, here's a bust of Mao, again from my own, my own collection. Why have I put that there? You know, I've told you some interesting things, I hope, about Mao, and I've told you that uh, he clearly was a bit of a, uh, he was a bit of a monster, there's no doubt about it. Uh, he may not have wanted to be, but he certainly was a bit of a bastard. Uh, and he, he certainly annoyed people, and he did things that, uh, 
he probably regretted himself. Is he, why is he universally not loathed? Well, the answer is because China is a huge place and people have different attitudes uh, according to class and background and what their experience was. If you were a writer in 1957 when Mao said to the writers, tell us what you think. Criticize our regime because by criticizing our regime you can help us make it better, as he did. This is the so-called Hundred Flowers movement of 1957. And he said that. He said, you know, so many writers did. We've got um, one of them, in fact, very famous one, who later became Minister of Culture, Wang Meng, is coming here in a couple of weeks' time. You'll be able to go and hear him speak. And he spoke out. He said various things. And what, what happened to all those writers who spoke out, or almost all of them? They ended up being thrown out of uh, their jobs, being sent to reform through labor camps, being really, you know, very badly treated, or worse than very badly treated for 20 years. They really had a very tough time. So if you're a writer who was criticized as being a writist after the Hundred Flowers Movement, typical naysaying by Mao, then you would have what, certainly, you would have a, a really uh, a, a bad attitude, uh, a negative attitude towards Mao. Let me, let me quote you uh, something quite interesting. Um, one of the ways in which uh, writers spoke out in 1957 was a poem that criticized the party state. It was called A Collection of Trees and Shrubs. And what happened was the person who wrote it had various trees and shrubs speaking out with unique voices, criticizing the party state in ways that Mao had asked them to do. And it became very famous. And it became uh, a, a prime target of the anti-rightist campaign that sent all these people into the west of China, into jail, into reform. After Mao died, and after things started to ease up again, a very famous painter called Huang Yu, Yong Yu, uh, wrote a new um, uh, thinly veiled parody of that earlier one. And he, 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 he had a collection of animals and insects. Uh, and several of the verses refer to Mao directly or indirectly. One, let me give you one example. And before I do, I have to tell you that Mao came from Hunan province, and the symbol of Hunan is a donkey. So in this poem, you get this really quite um, interesting criticism of Mao. It's called a brain, I'll give it you in English, a brain donkey. I'm not satisfied with people's assessment of my voice. I have to bray still louder. I simply have no choice. So you can, you can imagine that there are people, you know, who really didn't like him, but there are more positive. There are, I'm just, just give me a second. There are more positive views of Chairman Mao. You go to uh, anywhere in the countryside these days, you may see one of these busts in the countryside. A bit like a Buddhist shrine. Peasants pray to Mao. They give offerings to Mao. Mao indeed, even when Mao was alive, they did. I mean, at the height of the famine in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there were peasants who said, who wrote to Mao and said, Mao, please help us. The local party officials are taking the food away. The local party officials have made mistakes. They didn't hold him responsible. They didn't hold him responsible then, and they don't hold him responsible now. If you catch a taxi in Beijing or Shanghai or any city in China, you are likely to see a picture of Mao dangling from the rear view mirror or on the dashboard. Why? 
because Chairman Mao looks over us, always. I have a key ring I carry around with me. It's second nature. I just, I just want to end with one observation as well, though. Um, even intellectuals who suffered a lot from Mao, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, intellectuals were known as the stinking ninth category of, of uh, counter-revolution, uh, and were, which, which meant that they, they lost out in every way imaginable. Sometimes, of course, with their life, like Lao Shu, who was handed to death. You meet people of my age who live through that now. And, you know, a lot of them are very anti. But some of them, who can be a bit more, stand back a bit, can be a bit more dispassionate. I have a friend who was a research scientist, uh, is a research scientist, and at that time ended up uh, in a reform through Labour camp. He's now a research scientist. And, and he made one observation which I think is actually quite important and still holds true for uh, many people about Mao. And I want to end on this. He said, on the whole, the Cultural Revolution was bad. But you know, it emphasized the need and the ability of the people to challenge their rulers. And there is a sense in which that is still true. Those of the Chinese citizens who are netizens, who know that, um, uh, you know, who know that they live in an authoritarian state, but who still keep doing things, are in that tradition. And I think that's not an un unimportant thing to keep in mind. I'm happy to answer. And, oh no, there is one other thing, yes. And of course, the idea of Mao, the final idea of Mao, really important. He has become, <laughs> he has become a topic for pop art. And I particularly like this one, because of course, as you know, uh, the uh, Mona Lisa is uh, a byword for enigma. And in a sense, we might as well end up with Mao the enigma as anything else. Okay, sorry, now I've finished. I've really finished. David. Oh, sorry. Okay. We'll start with um, some questions. Um, any questions? Start at the back. Oh. Oh, God. The, uh, <coughs> it's a bit late, so you, you may have actually addressed this. But. Uh, can't hear. You hear better? Yeah. Um, was there someone like Mao in Chinese history before he came along? And will he come again? You know, I can't answer that question. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a scientific rationalist. And um, I, I don't know that I understand the question. Um, there have been charismatic figures in Chinese history, of course. Um, other people will be able to tell you about some of them. I, I suppose, in a way, uh, Confucius is a charismatic figure, certainly somebody who lived, and be, lived more, perhaps, after his death than during his lifetime. But I, I really, I, um, I don't really understand the question. Sorry. But at least that got the first question out of the way. Now we can relax. Uh, yes, I have a question. Why were the revolutionary committees disbanded? Oh. Well, you're asking the right person, of course. There's an article by David Goodman in China Quarterly, 
1980, which is called the Revolutionary Committee, an obituary. Uh, so, first of all, I think we need to tell everybody here what the Revolutionary Committees were, because I'm, I'm sure that there are some people who have no idea what they were. During the Cultural Revolution, as I alluded to, Mao overthrew the party state. He, um, he got the Red Guards and various other people, including the army, to uh, uh, throw the people who had been running the party state system out of office. So at every level of the administrative hierarchy, including ministries and so on, ministries, provinces, whatever, all the structures of the party state either collapsed or were stopped working. Starting in uh, September of 1966, the replacement for the organs of party state was something called a revolutionary committee, which was a three-way combination of uh, essentially of the Maoist forces in the great proletarian cultural revolution. And they were uh, the, I have to try and remember this, a long time ago, 1980. I was just born. Uh, not the Red Guards, but the PLA, People's Liberation Army people were in those revolutionary committees. The uh, rebel, uh, rebel faction, factional leaders, and uh, good cadres, they weren't called good cadres, but cadres who were on the side of Mao Zedong and Jiang Qing. Of course, uh, as the Cultural Revolution rolled on over the next two years, things got quite heated at times. There was essentially, in many areas, a civil war. You, you know, how did you know who was the good people, who were the good people, and who were the bad people in the Cultural Revolution? Well, you might think it's easy. Surely you just say those who were in favor of Mao Zedong were the good people and those who weren't were the bad people. But no, it didn't work like that. Nobody was against Mao Zedong. Nobody. Everybody was in... In fact, one of the, uh, one of the things that happened was you had red guards. I told you about red guards. So you had to prove you were redder than red. So how did you do that? Some people call themselves crimson guards. Sounds silly, but that's exactly what happened. So everybody was on Mao's side. <clears throat> and <clears throat> the principles often got lost. It was a localized row. It was a localized fight. Often you got branches of the People's Liberation Army fighting other branches of the People's Liberation Army. And you will appreciate that the People's Liberation Army has something that a group of students who call themselves Red Guards don't have, arms. And you have places where um, the fighting got very, very serious, and lots and lots of people were killed. By the middle of 1968, it was quite clear that that system had to be reined in. And I, I told you on the 5th of September, <coughs> 1968, Mao hauled in the Red Guard movement. And uh, subsequently, of course, the revolutionary committees continued, but with time it became clear that what was needed, typical Mao fashion, was to restore some semblance of the system that had existed before. And roundabout, oh no, I beg your pardon, it's not Mao who did it, excuse me. It didn't happen until 1979, 1980. But after Mao's death, then they hauled in the revolutionary committees. But of course, even by uh, the time of Mao's death in 76, the revolutionary committees had ceased to be the three-way combination of those who were the allies in the Cultural Revolution. 
because uh, uh, round about 1973, <clears throat> by 72, 73, many of the cadres who'd been forced out of office in the Cultural Revolution were coming back. So the whole system was changing itself. So the short answer to your question is that the Revolutionary Committees ended in a very symbolic way as uh, a turning over, a turning back of the Cultural Revolution. Um, yeah, there's a, how similar or how different was Mao to Stalin? Because it just seems to me that uh, Stalin's sort of developmental go-for-growth dictatorship is a bit more in common with Deng Xiaoping than it does with sort of the way Mao... Well, sort of you mean, you mean from the point of view of ideas about economic development? Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, um, this is going to sound strange. Um, but uh, because Stalin was not a great thinker but Deng Xiaoping was a less of a great thinker than Stalin was Deng Xiaoping was a pragmatist all the way through ideas please leave those to somebody else I will make things happen for you but not think in that sense he was a materialist by default Stalin was a materialist too GDP figures I mean there's a sense in which um, what the current regime in China is doing is totally in line with Deng Xiaoping's ideas. That's to say, GDP counts, nothing else is really there. That is the way to make our country great. And that is very Stalinist in one way, yes. But, you know, please, don't read into that a difference between Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. There's a difference in what they did. But if you try to say to Deng Xiaoping at any time, and remember he was ditched by Mao in the Cultural Revolution. But if you tried to say to Deng Xiaoping at any time that he was not like that with Mao Zedong, he would have been very upset. Really. It's not a joke. He was very, very committed to his relationship with Mao. G'day. Hello. How you going? Uh, just a really quick question. Um, it's to do with ideology and cult of personality. I remember a couple of years ago I saw and uh, a news footage of these two Chinese dissidents in China throwing eggs at the actual oh, portrait. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, just a bit of a visualization of my question. Where, where does ideology start and begin, and when does, in, in, as it reflects the cult of personality, I mean, is Mao Zedong Chinese communism, or can Chinese com communism exist outside of his, outside of the histrionics of that? Yeah, look, um, here's something which will shock all of you unless you've heard me <clears throat> talk about the 1930s, uh, which is what I really like to do. Um, in the 1930s, when the Chinese Communist Party was in North China, trying to um, uh, beat back the Japanese and fight the nationalists and so on, do you know what they went in for before 1939 in order to uh, gain political power? They went in for elections, genuine, open elections. And not only did they go in for them, but they won them. Not everywhere, very few places, but they did. Why do I mention this? Because if the Communist Party wants to reinvent itself in that way, it has a tradition, in inverted commas, that it can go back to. And that's true about so many things to do with the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party has Mao Zedong, has the Cultural Revolution, but it also has the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. There is, you know, ideology is like that. Uh, to over-codify ideology makes it too brittle. 
not to codify it at all makes it non, you know, doesn't make any difference. Why do you need an ideology? You need an ideology to mobilize people, to motivate people. And that's what the sort of Mao Zedong does. Um, that's what Marxism-Leninism does, even now, you know. Most people these days say, oh, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union, since the changes of the late 80s, Marxism uh, doesn't mean anything. That's not true. Uh, you don't have to be like my mother who used to say, and my mother used to scold me for studying China. She used to say, you know, I don't know, I should explain my mother was a revolutionary Trotskyist. She used to say, I don't know why you're studying China. That's the kind of Marxism that gives it a bad name. <laughs> you do not have to be like that to understand that from Marxism comes lots of ideas, or from the tradition, the organizational tradition of Marxism, comes lots of ideas which gives us, you know, ideas about social justice, ideas about organization, ideas about political discipline. I, I don't consider myself uh, a communist. I never have. But I understand all those things and how important they are if you want to change the world. It's as simple as that. Um. There was a slide you had up earlier on showing Mao in the senior leadership. Oh, yeah. I was wondering, would you mind perhaps going back no, to the No, not at all. How nice of you to be interested. It's actually quite a famous picture. Have you seen it before? Is there a reason you want it? Uh, just to hear uh, a little bit about the, the characters. Oh, you want to know who's who? Please. Oh, I thought somebody would ask me that. Okay. So, everybody know who this guy is too? Yeah? Yeah? That's Stalin in Chinese dress. Do you know who this is? Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, Liu Xiaoqi. Do you, know, do you know who these people were? No. You don't. You know who Deng Xiaoping was? Okay. At this time, uh, Deng Xiaoping was the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Mao was the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Liu Xiaoqi here was about to become the president of the People's Republic of China oh, in two years, time. two years' time. And he was at this point... My God, what was he at this point? Vice president? Vice, yeah. Vice chairman of the party, yeah, you're right. Vice chairman of the party. This man, this man is probably the single most important thinker in the Chinese Communist Party after 1949. His name was Chen Yun, and the ideas for uh, economic development that Deng Xiaoping implemented were largely his ideas, but also another guy who isn't in this picture called Sun Yefan. Uh, but uh, together, they are the architects of what's going on now. So bear that in mind. There's a little man in a brown suit. <laughs> now, who's this? Anybody know who that is? Yes, Zhou Zhongli. Do you know who, everybody knows who Zhou Enlai was the foreign minister? And uh, he had, of course, been uh, Mao's uh, opponent in the leadership battles of the early 1930s. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a happy day. Now, who, what about this one? Here's the difficult one. Who's the clever? Do you know this, Joe? Yeah, Judah. Do you know who Judah was? No. Okay, I told you that Mao Zedong went to the countryside in 1927-28 and set up the first of the the revolutionary areas, the mobilizing the peasants. He went with Judah. Judah was the military brains. Mao was no great military brains. Judah was. When they started doing it in 28, 
for about three or four years, the nationalist government and indeed foreign governments didn't know who Mao Zedong was and didn't know who Zhu De was. So they created a new personage called Zhu Mao. <laughs> and if you read the intelligent, the British intelligence reports of that time, it talks about a single leader called Zhu Mao. <laughs> but he was, he also, uh, he also, I mean, he's very famous. His biography by Agnes Smedley, called The Great Road, is a fantastic book. You should read it if you really like that stuff. It's a great story. Of course, it's all fiction, really, but uh, it, is a, it is a great story. She was madly in love with him. Uh, she was an American journalist, madly in love with him, and she wrote this. It's a really good book, though. It really is. It's like, um, oh, oh, I don't know. It's just, it's very exciting. It's about the Chinese Revolution. Okay? Thank you. No, my pleasure. Next question. Um, Somebody? You alluded to uh, Marx. You? You, you alluded to Marx. Uh, Marx oh, hello. <laughs> you alluded to Marx's um, uh, a vision of um, uh, a more uh, urban uh, proletariat uh, generated um, revolution. Um, to what extent um, are geography and the agrarian nature of um, uh, the development of Chinese society um, when Mao um, generates a revolution, uh, significant factors in the way in which uh, he was so uh, deified. Um, do you think that that's coincidental? Hmm. Let me just think that through whilst I'm talking to you first. <laughs> Geography is really important in understanding the Chinese revolution in two ways. 80% plus of the Chinese population when this is all going on in a revolution were peasants. So in the sense of rural-urban, quite clearly that was the case. The other thing that was important was they went, when they were running away either from the nationalists in 27 or from the Japanese in the late 30s, they went to the areas which were easier to defend, which was high country, hills, mountains, uh, nice little valleys that were full of water uh, you know for crops and so on but were protected like the Taihang Shan so that was that that's certainly the case moving on from there to then argue in some kind of cultural way that uh, the peasants were more superstitious or which I think is what you're getting at yeah um, yes and no this is not a very developed society you know I mean I don't want to look down in any way on Chinese civilization, but the notions of moving away from Chinese civilization into a modern Chinese statehood, you can, you can overstate. Language reform only really starts in 1926. It's very late. Even when, when I was wandering around China in the 1970s, I often went to places where people didn't speak Chinese. Sorry. I should explain what I mean by that. They didn't speak modern standard Chinese. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, you can tell, I'm not a native Chinese speaker. So I would go into shops and I would go to people and I was worried about my Chinese and I would, say, I would try to talk to people in Chinese and they wouldn't understand me. And I thought it was me. <laughs> but years later the penny dropped. Of course, they, in the south of China, they didn't speak modern standard Chinese. It's, uh, it's really only after the reform era starts 
people start to come together and communicate, that things really start to change. Let me give you another example, which is really quite horrendous. If you know anything about Chinese society before the revolution, you will know that people from the same village or with the same surname were not allowed to marry. Rules about cosing, sang, quin, co, sang, oh God, I've got, this is, comes out of the problem again. What do you call it? Same bloodline, you're not allowed. So danger of having, mixing of blood, people are not allowed to marry. So before 49, that was quite general. At times, it was illegal under the Republic. There were, there were laws about it, of course. The Republic's laws were not implemented, but nonetheless, they were there. People didn't do it. In, up until the late 1970s, and even into the 1980s, under the PRC, those rules were kind of thrown out the window because people didn't move around. There were no roads, there were no railways. It was difficult to move. And you find, I mean, I interviewed in, 19, in the mid-1990s, late 1990s, I interviewed about 320 entrepreneurs. And just by chance, I asked them, where did you meet your spouse? And guess where they met their spouse? In kindergarten, 40% of them. 40%. This is in a country, in the same village, you know. This is in a country where people didn't, and by the way, I'm not the only one who's got that kind of, research result, other people have found it too. But this is in a country where people used to have rules about these kinds of things. It's probably not dangerous, but because the population is quite large, but nonetheless. So you can see, I, don't, I do not want to give you the impression that China was totally primitive. It had rules and rituals and all kinds of things, uh, and particularly uh, uh, in the countryside. Um, but you can understand that there, there might be a level of education which was not quite the kind of rationalism you're, you, you might otherwise expect. Five, six hundred GDP per capita, uh, five, six hundred US dollars GDP per capita, which is what China's gross domestic product per capita was from about 1200 AD through to 1957. Literally, it stayed the same. Uh, that is not very much. It doesn't allow you the room uh, to buy education. The really interesting thing, of course, is uh, that that did start to change even before uh, uh, the reform era, but that's a different story. People in China, even now, don't talk with great clarity uh, about their time during the Cultural Revolution. You talk, um, having been there at that time, um, I spent a month there in 68. Would you like to give us your perspective and your timing and your perspective personally on that time? Because it's not one where there is great clarity um, of thought, and when you when you when I talk to to friends there, they move quickly away from that subject. Okay, I mean, <clears throat> I will answer your question, but I do want to say something first about differences in value systems. You know, Chinese laugh on different occasions to Australians, and they have different attitudes to explaining things that are embarrassing to Australians. 
and things which are a, national, a nationalist disgrace, as some people might think the Cultural Revolution is, they might not openly talk about it. Um, my experience is somewhat different to yours. I've heard people talk very clearly about the Cultural Revolution. I quoted you somebody at the end who suffered greatly, but nonetheless, you know, and he talks quite freely about his experiences, but nonetheless sees analytically it might be different. Now I'll try and answer your question. Um, you know, China is a big place. It's now got, then it had 700 million people, now it has 1,300 million people. If you take the 700 billion people who lived through the Cultural Revolution, they lived in different environments. The Cultural Revolution affected urban areas differently to rural areas. It affected uh, different parts of the country differently. Uh, it affected different classes differently. Uh, it, it's really, really very hard to generalize. Uh, if you were a writer, you were in trouble, almost, almost always. Even if you were a writer who wrote for the cultural revolutionaries, your chances of living through it were, were very low. Uh, the guy I told you about, the, the leader who I quoted before, who said, if I'd known what Mao was going to be like, uh, 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 if I'd known way back in the 40s what he was going to be like, I wouldn't have supported him. Let me tell you what happened to him. He's quite, you know, he became, he was a, 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 a follower of Mao. And at the, in the 50s and 60s, he rose up the system. And he became a, a fairly national, he became a member of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. And he, he, in fact, became a member of the Politburo during the Cultural Revolution as a follower of Mao, as one of the revolutionary group. In the middle of the Cultural Revolution, somebody, his enemies, because, you know, everybody like that has enemies, decided he was a, he was a radical lefty and criticized him for being too left-wing and he got sent to a reform, uh, a cadre school and in fact was put in jail for a long time too and really suffered physically. So, the stakes are high for some people, the stakes are non-existent for others. It was perfectly possible for somebody living in uh, uh, a, a rural area of some of China's provinces not to, un, not to have anything happen to them and also not to have the language for it. When we were students in the Cultural Revolution during the 70s in China, we had to go off and do uh, uh, our bit of labor, you know, uh, along with the students. That was compulsory. So a great expense to the Chinese state, I have to say, we were sent to villages and we had to do these things. And so, you know, we were billeted with a peasant family, poor peasant families, all I can say. And, but we tried to talk to them and we would say to them things like, um, so how do you feel about the revolution? <laughs> now I have to tell you, that question often threw people. I mean, not us, I mean them. Because they didn't think in those terms. What revolution are you talking about? Where was the revolution? This is how we've always lived. That's not true, of course. But, so, I, I just think one has to be, to be very careful. 68, you asked me about 68. 68 was, uh, depends when in 68, but 60, early 68 was very violent. It was the height of uh, army fighting army, uh, which is, of course, uh, one of the reasons that the whole thing was, was wound back, because it was getting out of hand. Um, but again, there were parts of China where that didn't happen. 
How happy would you think if Mao could see the modern Chinese society today? Ah, uh, yeah. I knew somebody. I'm glad you asked that because I've been thinking about that. As I've been writing my comments, you know, I've been thinking, if somebody asked me that, what I would say. Well, I'll give you my honest answer. I think he would be appalled. Uh, I have no doubt in my own mind that this is not what Mao wanted. Mao certainly wanted China to be a great nation state. And he would, he would revel in that. But he would be appalled by the rise of the bourgeoisie. Absolutely appalled. The man was not stupid, you know. You can call him a monster, you can call him all kinds of things. One thing he was, I mean, he was ineffectual in lots of ways. He wasn't a great political philosopher. But he would have been, I think he would have been appalled. The inequality, the way that people treat each other, the way the party has actually sold out to things that, I mean, you can be very cynical about that. You can say he only launched the Cultural Revolution because he was losing power. But it's not true. He wasn't losing power. Fred Tevis, who's at this university, uh, has been the leading historian in the English language of the Chinese Communist Party. He's written a series of books over the years which has shown, contrary to popular belief, that the Cultural Revolution was not a fight within the Chinese Communist Party, with Mao on one side and the opposition on the other. It was a, there was a fight within the Communist Party, but it was between members of the Communist Party trying to get Mao's attention, trying to be good boys for Mao. Mao was totally in control, and he changed things in the Cultural Revolution because he wanted to change things, because he didn't like the policies and the way they were going. And the way they were going, it wasn't by comparison with what's happening now, it was very minor. The inequalities were very minor. The rich getting richer was very small. He really wouldn't go for it. Bear in mind, <coughs> I don't know that Mao would be right to be annoyed, but bear in mind that in 1976, when Mao died, Gini coefficient in China was 0.22. Oh, in case you don't know about Gini coefficient, it goes from 0 to 1. And north is equality, and one is inequality. So point two, uh, Australia is about uh, point 0.3, a reasonably equal country. America is about point 0.4. The most unequal countries in the world are point 0.46 to 0.49. Uganda, Brazil, uh, China, actually, now. But in 1976, when Mao died, it was point 0.22. It was the most equal country in the world. Would he have cared about that? Yes, I think he would. I, and I think he wouldn't have liked a policy which moved away from... Uh, his policy of regional economic development was that each region had to be self-sufficient. Now, we've moved away from that in China now. We've got... Hang on a second, just let me finish. Well, you, you don't have to agree. She was asking me my opinion, and you can make your opinion too. I mean, please forgive me, but... Uh, he had a regional economic development policy, which was that each area should be self-sufficient. Now, we don't have that anymore. We have, an air, we have a regional economic development policy now, which says Guangdong shouldn't grow rice because it can have light engineering, and it will get its rice from Hunan. Hunan will grow rice because it doesn't have light engineering. Now, you were going to make a point. Please make it. Chinese, uh, in, uh, at that time, can be very, very equal. Uh, to, you can include that the 
and people died from you know, uh, oh no no sorry please 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 do not get carried away the question was what would Mao think and I'm giving you my interpretation of what Mao would think I have absolutely no doubt that what we had in the Maoist era was an equality of poverty and very poor living conditions but I'm telling you what Mao would have, in my opinion what Mao would have liked and I think Mao I mean you know this is where Jan Rung's book is correct Mao was prepared to sacrifice lots of people in China for his political ideals he was that's there's no question about that his whole history is like that but he did you know people do good things and they do bad things what he did was very bad he did some good things okay I think that might be time to finish now um Thank you, David. Um, if you could just join me in thanking Professor David Hello. Goodman. Thank you. Please don't applaud. Don't applaud. Just go out and buy the book. <laughs>